one of the great gifts about being a GP is you get to know people well over time and you can have a you can have a big influence, you can have a big impact. When you can really, I suppose, show people and support people to see things a bit differently and take ownership for their own health. I think that's a really big thing for, for doctors now is to focus less on the idea of prescribing and curing and focus more on the answer to how do you empower people. Hello, I'm Professor Patrick Murray and I'm delighted to host this second series of the UCD School of Medicine podcast series, MGA Clinical Influencers. No doubt lots of our listeners are familiar with the MGA or Medical Graduates Association. For those of you who aren't, the MGA plays a vital role in keeping you, our School of Medicine graduates, in touch with fellow alumni across Ireland and around the world. The MGA is your organisation, offering you a lifelong partnership with the UCD School of Medicine. During this podcast series, graduates will bring us on a trip down memory lane, describing their time in UCD, and on some occasions in other schools of medicine, along with their experiences as junior doctors. They will discuss their specialty areas, highlighting some of the challenges they've encountered during their careers, and how they shared their expertise and helped coach others. On a personal level, they'll discuss how they manage a decent work-life balance, and will share recommendations for books, music, holidays, and other aspects of their lives. Our interviewees have compelling stories to share that will spark your curiosity about life and the clinical specialty they've chosen. First of all, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm a professor of clinical pharmacology at UCD and a consultant physician at the Mater Misericordia University Hospital in Dublin. I'm a 1988 graduate of the UCD School of Medicine and spent time in internship in Dublin and in residency in internal medicine in Minneapolis, followed by fellowship training at the University of Chicago, where I was a faculty member until I returned to Ireland in 2008 as the Professor of Clinical Pharmacology in UCD and a consultant at The Matter. I've served as the clinical lead in the CRC at The Matter Hospital and served as the Dean and Head of the School of Medicine at UCD from December 2012 through June 2018. Today our MGA podcast is part two of my conversation with Dr. Mark Rowe, a 1991 graduate of the UCD School of Medicine. So then, uh, you know, you had a good internship experience. You picked up some skills. Um, it sounds like you'd already decided general practice was the way to go. Did you go straight to a scheme then, or how did you do it? Yeah, I remember um, Tony Hoolan and I were great pals um, at the time. We both wanted to do general practice, and Tony was going to do a scheme in Limerick, and I was going to go for the, the new scheme in, in, in Waterford. And we went to meet Jerry Bury. And uh, we didn't know where Jerry Bury, he was the professor of general practice. He was we didn't know, professor at that time. Yeah, we didn't know where his office was. So we were, we were walking around um, Earlsford Terrace um, looking for his office. But he was actually, I think he was actually in Belfield. So, I mean, the, it was such a low profile at the time is what I'm saying. But I was very fortunate. I got onto the first uh, GP scheme in, in, the, in, the, in the southeast that had just been set up. And it was been run by a GP there called Martin Rouse. Very, very well run. And I had a great training experience. I did a year with Jerry Sullivan in Clonmel. And, you know, it really, it was very, very good, the GP training. And did you stay in the, the region ever since? Yeah, I stayed in the region ever since. I mean, if I was back again, which of course we're never back again, but if I was back again, I think uh, my, my, my wife and I, we'd, we would have travelled, probably would have gone to Australia for a couple of years. I know they all go now. It's the thing. Very much it was seen as a one-way ticket back in those days. Uh, and I was offered a job in my home city uh, before I'd even finished my training program. It was very tempting. I took the job. 
and and stayed. And then one thing led to another, set up my own practice uh, about three years later. Um, and that was really the, the beginning. You know, we had a, an arson attack after a year. The, the practice was, was burnt. We had a place over a shop and two guys broke in, set four fires, burnt the place. And uh, that was tough. You think that was targeting the shop or... No, I wasn't targeting the shop. The shop was downstairs. They didn't go into the shop. They, it was targeted the practice. I was consumed by, you know, who would do this and why for, for weeks afterwards. I had all sorts of people telling me all sorts of things. Um, and, of course, we were wondering, my wife and I, would they come to our house next to wherever they were? Well, what, was, what was the reason? There was no obvious reason. But I learned to let go of that. I learned that you can't turn back the clock. You can't change what's, ha- what's happened has happened. You know, I can put my hand to my heart all those years later now, and that fire was really, it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me professionally, the fire, believe it or not, because it taught me how resilient I am. It really gave me the impetus to really kick on and, and really go for it. And, you know, I had a premises built 18 months afterwards and, and, and less than eight years after that, I'd moved into the Waterford Health Park. I bought, a, I bought a convent. Will I tell you the story about the convent? Please. We built our first premises after the fire. And at that stage, um, the primary care strategy came out 2001. And it was very much about sort of team-based primary care. It was very much about dietitians and nurses and physiotherapists all working with doctors for the benefit of patients under the one roof. And I realized that if I wanted to do this properly, I'd need to move again. So I, I said to myself, where, where is the best example of primary care practice in the world? And it turned out it was in London, a place called Bromley by Bow in East Ham, a very deprived area of East London. So I got an architect and we flew over there in 2003 and we went on a personalised tour of this facility. Amazing. A lot of the patients didn't even speak English, yet their vaccination uptake rates for baby vaccinations were well over 95%. They had artists on, on site drawing free pictures of the mothers and babies while they queued for their vaccines. There was all sorts of community activities on site. It was, it was an amazing place. It really opened my eyes. And I said, I want to do something like that in Ireland. But you couldn't compete with developers. Um, you know, it was, it was the height of the Celtic Tiger. And I, and I wanted my place to be a walk to as well as a drive to. I didn't want the place to be something, you know, three or four miles out of town or whatever. So the presentation order of nuns had a beautiful convent. Their numbers were dwindling. And I got a call one day to say they were thinking of selling. And uh, we walked around it and it was dark, it was grim and it was beautiful. There was such a fabulous feel there. Um, And we just said, this is perfect. And I bought the convent. We then, it was a protected structure. It was designed by Pugin who did Big Ben in London. I mean, it's a gem of a building. And we went through an extensive planning process and we completely renovated it, uh, flooded the building with light uh, added on new wings, made it uh, wheelchair accessible, general practice on the ground floor. And we opened in, in May 2009. Did you put together all that finance yourself? Or Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, P- 
people have said to me, Mark, you've got a lot of courage. <laughs> and, you know, I suppose courage and foolhardiness maybe are, 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 are very close together. But I suppose I, I just I, I just believed in it totally. I was just so passionate about, about delivering this and doing it and, and making it happen. I just didn't see any of the, the downsides. Were you able to scope out space for all those other disciplines to be in the primary yeah. care centre? So we brought in the HSE. So the HSE, they wanted to kind of get in, into primary care spaces. So they took a significant amount of space there for public health, nursing and physiotherapy and dietitian and so on. And we put in a pharmacy on site as well. And then our practice, little uh, coffee shop, little, little uh, vegan coffee shop there now as well. But it wasn't easy. And of course, we just moved in in 2009 when the, when the great financial crash was really kicking off, I suppose. We'd had Lehman's Brothers, but now it was really starting to kick off in Ireland. And, you know, after, after a while, it became really apparent that this was going to be really tough. And, you know, what happened then was general practice was cut 40%. They were called the famous FEMPI cuts. The average health sector cut during the crash was 14%. But we were cut 40% off the top. That was a huge, huge number. And mm-hmm. um, for a practice like ours, you know, we 26 staff or so, with a very high cost base uh, in that place, just couldn't make the numbers add up. And it was very tough. And I did what I always knew to do. When you're under pressure, you work harder. And I worked harder and harder, probably for about three years until I couldn't, I couldn't work any harder, couldn't work any longer. And I got to a stage where I just had to wave a flag and say, I'm taking time out. And I went off and spoke to somebody, which for me at the time was a big deal because I was... uh, Despite being a, a, a GP for a long time, I was still stupid enough to believe that um, I was in some way different from the thousands of patients I'd seen over the years, that in some way I was bulletproof or immune to uh, superhuman levels of stress. And of course, none of us is bulletproof. None of us is immune. Everyone has a tipping point. I went off and spoke to somebody. I realized that I was experiencing burnout, maybe not a severe form, but I certainly had some symptoms of burnout. And I, I took time out. I took um, nine months off, almost unheard of, I suppose. But And my wife and I and, and kids, we traveled. We went to the States for a couple of months. Had a fabulous time. I completely recharged, learned to see things differently and learned really, I suppose, if I was to sum it up, Pat, I'd say I learned to get real clarity that my, my purpose in this life is serving others. But if I'm going to serve others, I need to be also able to take good care of myself. So it's not one or the other. So it sounds like this all, all happened from adversity. Um, if those things hadn't happened to you, do you think you ever would have gone in that direction? Or do you think it was? No, no, it's amazing. I mean, you know, you look back in life and you can look at lots of different things that happened along the way. And they all help form us. They all help make us the person we are and the person we are becoming because we're all, nothing is static. We're constantly on a, on a journey. And um, so I'm grateful for all of my experiences that I've had. I've, I've been tremendously privileged to uh, be able to do medicine in UCD, to be a doctor, to be a GP, to work in my community and to be able to have a positive impact on so many people. And I see the kind of 
um, adversities I've had along the way as just stepping stones and necessary steps for growth. And you can't experience that level of growth from any degree, from any book, from any master's. Uh, there's nothing like the university of life. It really is the greatest teacher of all. So you, you, you bring this to uh, other professionals dealing with, with stress, but you bring it to patients as well, right? Uh, you get them to deal with adversity, promote their own health. Um. That's the, one of the great gifts about being a GP is you get to know people well over time and you can have a, you can have a big influence, you can have a big impact. And when you can really, I suppose, show people uh, and support people to see things a bit differently and take ownership for their own health. I think that's a really big thing for, for doctors now is to, you know, focus less on the idea of prescribing and curing and focus more on the answer, on the answer of sort of how do you empower people? How do you educate people? How do you um, encourage people? I think that word encouragement is a fantastic word, you know, on courage, with courage, to encourage people. Um, I'm sure you've met a lot of people, Pat, I certainly have over the years, beaten down by life, toxic workplaces, relationships, whatever. I've rarely met somebody that was overappreciated or overvalued, overrecognized. Patients sometimes have a different expectation. They want, they want a prescription for a medicine no, and, they're dis- and they're disappointed with, with a visit or do you find that they take to this well? For me, it's not, it's lifestyle medicine is a lifestyle first, but it's not a lifestyle only. And there's two words in lifestyle medicine. One is lifestyle, but the other is medicine. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Let's remember that as a doctor, you're there to, as I see it, you're there to meet somebody wherever they're at and clarify what their ideas are, what their expectations are and meet them at a place that, that supports them. And of course, sometimes a prescription is entirely appropriate, entirely necessary. Um, as I say, you know, you'll, you'll never uh, meditate your way out of meningitis. And, and, you know, Pilates won't do much good for your pneumonia. So, you know, let's, let's you know, it's, it's about balance and perspective. But I think if we can encourage people to move beyond the, the immediacy of the, of the complaint to say, well, what could you do? So if somebody comes in with back pain, so, of course, you're going to treat the back pain with anti-inflammatories or whatever it is. But what can this person do so that if we're to press the fast forward button for 10 or 20 years, looking back, they're far less likely to have to come to people like me with their back pain. And now you're looking at maybe could they take up swimming? Could they take up yoga? Could they take up Pilates? In other words, can they become more active participants in their own well-being as opposed to simply being passive consumers of healthcare? I think that's really the op- I see that as a great opportunity to support people take ownership for their own health. So your, your prescription book then has referrals to a lot of people in the community who train health and fitness, um, te- teach uh, mental health strategies, counselling. Yeah. They're, they're, they're important colleagues for you, aren't they? Everyone is there um, and everyone has a role to play. I mean, I think, I mean, exercise is the greatest pill of all. Movement is medicine. What can you do to encourage somebody to move more, to, to exercise more? Maybe CBT would be the way to go. Um, I often recommend to people spend time in nature. I mean, nature is such a wonderful environment to enhance your health, reduce stress, clear your mind, uh, boost creativity. 
And this is all evidence-based, you know. And, we can, and you can do this in Ireland. It's, it's relatively use, accessible. It's relatively accessible. It's relatively free. It's relatively easy. Um, you know, a couple of hours a week has been shown now. It will, it will enhance your well-being. So I'm always interested in, in, in strategies to support your well-being, where there's a science to back them up. Show me the science. Sometimes people say, hey, Mark, I'm a skeptic on all this well-being business. I say, well, it's good to be a skeptic. I'm, I'm a scientist, you know, uh, as a doctor. But let's see the evidence. But if there is evidence there, well, let's, let's see what the evidence shows. What do, you, what do you think about the benefits of uh, having a pet? Vitamin P. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, pe- pe- I mean, pet lovers, I mean, it's ext- I've learned so much over the years, uh, you know, from my patients. And, you know, patients um, really often love their pets. And, you know, a pet dog or it can be like just like a family member. And there's a similar bereavement process that people go through when a pet dies. I didn't grow up in a family with pet. I didn't really understand that. Um, but of course, it's, it's the oxytocin. It's that the empathy. It's the bonding. It's the connection. Um, but it's not just having a pet. I mean, even, even caring for a plant, even having a plant at your desk has well-being benefits. You know, watering a plant. It's, it's focusing really, on some, something other than yourself. Something outside of yourself, being other-centred. And, um, you know, empathy and kindness and care, um, all mediated through oxytocin, nitric oxide, all that kind of stuff. That's all really, really so good for us. It almost seems uh, trite to ask you about uh, your approach to work-life balance, but uh, do you have advice for, for people about how to maintain that balance? Well, I think it starts with understanding uh, who you are. So it goes back to why, you know, the, the, kind of the epicenter of our purpose, you know, why do you do what you do? Um, and, and can you figure out some, maybe some simple ways to reconnect what you do with who you are? So that's kind of maybe realigning your job with your sense of purpose. And you can do that quite easily by focusing, learning to focus more on your strengths, learning how to more support others more. So now the whole idea of being at work isn't such a big deal anymore because you're making your work really enjoyable because it's now part of who you are. So now there isn't this sort of dichotomy between work and non-work, work and life, as they say. But I was going to say that, I mean, for, for many people... Uh, work defines a lot of what they are, and uh, and they do enjoy it. Absolutely, but doesn't mean it's, it doesn't mean they don't need a bit of balance. I think it's really important to have downtime. So it's not the word. Ba- I don't like to use the word balance myself as such, but I, I know exactly what you're saying. To be di- able to disconnect, switch off. I love to spend time um, in nature. My wife and I have a we've we've a beautiful garden. We've planted loads of trees, and I'm probably at my happiest um, out among the trees. And teaches so much and sometimes for me down I love to play tennis uh, I love to stay fit but all those kind of things a great meal out reading a great book but sometimes downtime can just involve doing nothing just sitting chilling having a nice cup of tea with with no distraction it can be absolutely lovely I think for for many of us we found that was one of the the positive aspects of of the COVID period is making people to spend time with each other mm. which they didn't have but uh, it obviously had its difficulties as well. Um, even even that regard, I think, I think for young people in particular, they many of them had a difficult time. They didn't form relationships 
that they would otherwise have formed. So I think it's probably reasonable to say that, uh, you know, the getting out and having human connections more important than ever. More important than ever. Absolutely. I mean, we, I mean, loneliness is, and you don't have to be in a, in a, you know, in a crowd to avoid loneliness or you don't have to be in a marriage to avoid loneliness. I mean, loneliness can, can, can affect anybody anywhere and it can be so toxic. I remember reading recently, you know, it, it can do the same thing to your fibrinogen levels as smoking cigarettes. So, you know, loneliness is the most terrible poverty and, uh, you know, meeting people, connecting with people. It's, it's the basis of who we are. So well, I know you're, you're going to have a good book recommendation for us. Is there a particular book you'd recommend everyone to read right now? I'm, I'm reading two uh, at the moment. One is called The Celtic Wisdom of Trees uh, by Jane Gifford. And it's, it's a wonderful book uh, about mystery, magic and medicine when it comes to trees and the old Celtic wisdom from, from the silver birch, which represents sort of springtime renewal to the timeless wisdom of the beach and everything in between. Uh, it's just fascinating for me to read that. And then The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, which is 365 days. So there's one for every day of the year, a little stoic reflective quote with an interpretation. So something uh, to think about. What's your, what's your favourite uh, stoic so far? Oh, I, I think it's um, probably Seneca. Um, and uh, I remember he, he wrote once, you know, about life, you know, what progress am I making in this life? And he said, I, I'm learning to become a friend to myself. And I think that's such a beautiful quote. This idea of self-compassion is so important, particularly uh, for those of us in the medical profession, where we can spend so much of our lives being of service to others and giving to others. And yet we can be so harsh and, and tough on ourselves. And I think in today's world, more than ever, uh, medics uh, will benefit from embracing the ideas of self-compassion and, and kindness and, and really being good to themselves. Speaking of being good to yourself, um, where do you like to holiday? Where would you recommend? Well, there's lots of places. I mean, I, I, love, I love the west of Ireland. Um, my wife's from County Clare, so we love going down there. During the winter months, I like to get away to anywhere that's got good tennis. So um, Portugal or, or Cyprus uh, would be high in my radar for, for, for tennis holidays. But for any of the international people listening, please come to Ireland. Uh, the southeast where I'm from, we've got a wonderful 30 mile greenway now. You can cycle the whole way from Waterford to Dungarvan. It's absolutely gorgeous uh, by the river or get up to the west of Ireland and see it. You, you won't regret it. Ireland really is such a beautiful place. If you could share with us your, your bucket list, um, let, let, let me know if you've come up with it yet or is that something you're leaving for the future? Well, I think because I didn't get to travel a huge amount when I was younger, uh, I think I'd like to travel more now going forward. And certainly my wife and I have plans. I mean, our family are nearly reared and uh, certainly extensive plans to travel. Uh, lots of places I'd love to see. I'd love to get to Japan, the kimono in Japan, in southern Japan, New Zealand. We've got friends in in New Zealand are always inviting us over there. So there are lots of places I'd like to go go and see. If you uh, if you're asked to speak to yourself as a 24 year old, what advice would you give? Oh, I'd say be patient. You know, life's a marathon. Don't be don't believe things have to be done too quickly. Um, don't ever stop believing in yourself, and re always remember. 
you are good enough and uh, you are enough right now. You don't need to uh, strive to get to any place else. Enjoy the journey and enjoy each moment along the way. Sounds like you'd give yourself good advice. As we finish, is there? would you like to give us some thoughts on how you'd like the health system to evolve in Ireland? Which way do you think it should go? Oh, I mean, how long have we got? I mean, I think the, the current system is broken. There's no doubt about it. And I think for me, the fundamental question is, do you try and fix it or do you try and remodel it, remake it? I would like to see, you won't be surprised to hear me saying this, I'd like to see it remodeled from the ground up. And I'd really like it to become much more patient-centred. And I'd love to see a future where people can get timely access to the care they need when they need it, um, close to their home from a suitably qualified specialist that can give them really world-class outcomes. And I know we've got fantastic people in the Irish Health Service. They need to be valued. So I think it's, um, there's two words in the word healthcare, Pat. There's health and care. I think traditionally we've done the health bit well. I don't think we've done the care bit quite as well. And what I mean by that is, I mean care for, care for the staff working in the system. I think we need to really wrap our arms around our healthcare staff. We need to value who we have in the system. We need to see them as potential ambassadors to draw back in people from around the world, from the global diaspora. And there's no doubt if, if people work together and if we get some realignment, we can have the world-class uh, health system and service that our country deserves. That sounds like a great plan and I look forward to it coming to pass. I wanted to really thank you for your time. It's been really interesting. And I know all of our medical graduates will be thrilled to listen to your thoughts and uh, how your career has gone. I want to spend it to thank you for the time to explain to us what you think about how health promotion should be done. I think uh, everyone will benefit a lot from your thoughts. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Pat. <laughs>